If you'll indulge me here for just a couple of moments, I'm on my way up to the pulpit. Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, as well as Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, give us our guidance and direction for why we do every Sunday what we did five or ten minutes ago. A commemoration of the suffering and the death and the resurrection of our Lord. When we think about the commemoration of the Lord's Supper, we are looking in three directions. We're looking at our past. We're looking at the past in which Jesus hung on the cross. We're looking at our present and our life as we examine ourselves. And we're looking to the future. We're proclaiming His death till He comes. We are living with a hope. And all of that is captured in the Lord's Supper. I was doing the math this morning and it has been over 800 days since the worldwide pandemic began to affect our lives, every facet of it. And there was no facet of our life that has been touched that seems to be the same as it was before. And it impacts us in different ways. But I want you to think about one of the changes that took place. And I'm glad to see that it's somewhat going back into uh, what it was before, at least by virtue of time. On March 15th, 812 days ago, was our last normal service before we were shut down. Governor Bashir said that no more than uh, 10 people could meet together. And so what we would do, if you recall, was for about a month and a half, we maybe close to two months, we met together. Nine of us were assigned. Jeremy was in charge at that time. And we came together, and as we came together, we attended the Lord's Supper. It was the first time that we were introduced to this, many of us, unless you've been polishing the pulpit. And because of the nature of things... When the man would get up to lead us in our observance of the Lord's Supper, many of us were watching it later because it was recorded early in the morning. It's awkward when there aren't men passing it out and going out into the auditorium to stand there for a long, long time. And so the observance would be very short. We would take that bread, and unless you hit the pause button at home, you had to hurry your thoughts along. And then they would stand before us, and it was probably even worse because... Behind the taking of the fruit of the vine, there's the giving. And it seems like we we, we grow a little bit more restless in that. And so we took our 15 to 30 seconds, maybe, to observe the Lord's Supper. It felt inadequate. We came back together starting, I believe it was, May 24th. But you may remember because of cleanliness protocols and trying to keep ourselves as free from the virus as possible. It was many months before we had men standing up to do what was done today, to pass out those emblems. And so as we collected our implements on the way in the door, it was the same thing, wasn't it? The man who would lead us in the observance of the Lord's Supper would pray and we would take that bread I don't know about you, but I tried to get a head start. I I peeled mine open before the prayer, had it in my hand, ready on the amen to put it in my mouth so I could get as much time as possible. did the same thing with the fruit of the vine. I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem to be adequate. So I'm thankful that we have returned to this time in which we could spend more time in commemoration of the Lord's Supper. The thing about the observance of the Lord's Supper is that 
It is a community event. That was why it was so difficult for us to be a part. Because you see the early church coming together in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 to take the Lord's Supper. There's a, a communion that occurs when we're all here observing that together. It's hard to do that elsewhere. But not only that, as we think about how guidance is given to us, we're not told and at times in church history, they've been a little bit more interactive than we are now. Paul is correcting a fellowship meal approach to the Lord's Supper that caused some to be neglected and others to be overindulgent. And so he gives them the idea that you can eat your common meals outside of this sacred time. This is a time to remember the suffering and the death of Christ. And yet, as we think about the observance of the Lord's Supper... It's hard for us, isn't it, to figure out what we're supposed to do with ourselves during that time. I realize that this morning, and this is a wonderful problem, that we have a great many newer Christians who have not grown up with the institution of the Lord's Supper Sunday by Sunday. We have a great many young people here this morning who maybe do not have this subject that's been thoroughly explained to the rest of them. And maybe you've been in the body of Christ for longer And you wonder, what do we do during that time? It's hard for my mind not to go somewhere else. It's hard for me to understand what God wants me to be doing. So what I'd like us to do this morning, as you've already had your Bibles open to Luke 23, is to keep it there. I want us to spend some time, as the song said, bringing its scenes before us. And what I appreciate about Luke is that Luke gives us the most concise and the most direct approach of the events that took place starting in Gethsemane. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 47, Luke tells us that the Jews found Jesus in the garden thanks to Judas and arrested him. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 66 through 71, they uh, charged him, examined him, and asked him whether or not he was the promised Messiah. And they found him guilty in their eyes of blasphemy, speaking evil against God. And in Luke chapter 23 and verse 1, they lead Jesus to Pilate. And from there we see Jesus tossed about from person to person and from place to place. And as we see what Luke lays out for us in Luke chapter 23, it causes us to ask ourselves, where would we find ourselves had we been present on that day? Because as we start the chapter, we see that uh, there were some who actively opposed Jesus. This was the Jews. The Jews arrested him, they accused him, they criticized him. They fought until they had him crucified on the cross. And as I see this act of opposition to the will of Jesus Christ, it causes me to ask myself, what would I do with Jesus had I been there that day? But also we see that there were some who were passive and indecisive about Jesus on that day. And that certainly would be a description of Pilate. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent and he tried to have him released. And yet the mounting pressure of the Jews caused it to be such that ultimately their will prevailed and he handed them a Jesus over to their will. As we read in verse 25. Pilate had the power, he had the position to let him go, and yet the pressure, the thoughts, the feelings of those around him were so great that he was indecisive. He was passive, and he passed the buck on to others. And then we see that there were some who mocked and were amused by Jesus. He was the object of jokes to them. 
And this would describe Herod and his soldiers. Herod had for a long time wanted to see Jesus and to see some great work done by him. Had wondered if this was John the Baptist reincarnate or Elijah. For the words were coming about that this is who it might have been. And so here's Jesus and he wants something done. And and Jesus will not be the plaything for him. And so finally since he did not fit his preconceptions he sent him away. And I'm challenged when Jesus doesn't fit my preconceptions. Will I adjust or will I send him away? I appreciate so much Mike and his preparation for the song service this morning. There are so many songs on the cross. There's another one that says, what will you do with Jesus? The question comes to you and you must give an answer for something you must do. There were, there was this range of reaction to Jesus. But finally Jesus was taken from the presence of Pilate and he's on his way to the place of execution. And Luke continues to walk us through the events of that day. And as he does so, we see those who make the journey. And sometimes we want to know. And and those who do archaeology say, what's the exact route from Pilate to uh, Calvary? And we don't know exactly, but whichever route, there's two that they recommend as the routes. Both of them are a little bit more than a half a mile. You imagine Jesus going to the place in which he knows He's going to suffer what he dreaded so much. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. Who's on the journey? On the journey is the Christ. I want you to try to look out through his eyes. Starting in verse 26. Obstructed by tears and sweat and blood. But as Jesus is making the walk, whatever he saw, he saw the reason why he was heading to Calvary. And it was because of the ugliness and the reality and the universal nature of our sin. And I have to wonder, was the burden of his heart heavier than the burden on his back? Christ goes to the place of execution. But also on that trip to Calvary was the cross-bearer, a man pretty enigmatic to us, a man by the name of Simon, Simon of Cyrene. Do you wonder as you read about him in this account, is he friend, is he foe, is he a man who's in the wrong place at the wrong time? Is this duty or is this love? Is this an honor for him or is this a humiliation? Whatever it was, Simon bears Jesus' burden with him. And as I study this, I think about the fact that as Jesus died on the cross for the salvation of souls, I joined Simon, and I do so willingly, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 through 26, in bearing the burden that led him to Calvary, and that's to save lost souls. And I am to walk behind him as long as it takes. Then I also see on the way to the cross that day, in this part of the chapter, there's the crowd Verse 27 through 31. And on this part of the day and in this part of the journey is the one time that I can see in Scripture where the crowd is friendly to Jesus. They're allies. They're on His side. It's the women. And these women that are walking with Jesus to the cross are lamenting, they're sorrowing, they're mourning because of what's happening to their Savior and their Lord. But isn't it remarkable that despite his suffering and his sleeplessness and his sorrow, that Jesus is not thinking about himself, but Jesus speaks to the women even with the burden that he's carrying to Calvary. And he points them to an event not happening that day, but decades in the future. The destruction of Jerusalem. But friends, I would suggest to you that Jesus is looking even further. Jesus is looking out past the destruction of Jerusalem to the greatest judgment that will ever occur at the end of all things. 
And He wants us to focus. He wants us to see what He asked those women to see. It's what led Him from heaven to earth, from the earth to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. And then there are the criminals in verse 32. You know, of all the people present that day, only these two men truly could empathize with Jesus. They knew at each step, as they took their place, going closer and closer to their cross, they knew the dread. They knew the pain. They knew the fear. They knew the suffering that awaited them. They knew the humiliation and the screams and the jeers from the crowd. These men are going to die that day for their sins, but they could not atone for their sins. Jesus is going to the cross and He's going to die for their sins and for our sins. And His death was the atonement. Romans chapter 5 and verse 11. And so as we walk with Jesus, we get to the place of crucifixion. And Jesus' cross is planted in the ground. He is fastened to it. And Jesus hangs there. I want us to do just as the song suggests. Jesus, keep me near the cross. Bring its scenes before me. And I want it to do two things for us. I would like for it to help us to consider what our Lord would like us to focus our hearts and our minds and our lives upon. That The Lord's Supper serves as that purpose to help us to draw our minds back to Calvary. But it's not just an observance. It's a life-changing event. I want us to think about how the scenes of Calvary ought to change our lives at its very core. Will you notice with me three things that the scenes of Calvary brings before us? First of all, the scenes at Calvary bring before us the fact that Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks at the cross. And that's an incredible thing. As we look mostly in Luke chapter 23, but when we think about Jesus speaking, there are multiple gospel writers who draw those scenes for us. When we think about the cross, the cross was a a punishment that was invented by the Persians between 300 and 400 B.C. It was probably the cruelest punishment, the harshest death that was ever invented by mankind. But the Romans perfected it. They maximized the spectacle of the victim... They maximized the strategies to keep the victim alive as long as they could to maximize the feelings of pain. But I want you to think about the fact that Jesus was able, despite the pain that he felt and the slow, torturous death. By the way, excruciating, that word that we use, is from that Latin word from which we get the word crucifixion. And it's the idea of the intense suffering and pain. Jesus went through excruciating pain in just one of the things that he endured, was what would happen by hanging there to the diaphragm? You see, when you think about it, and as you probably will think about it more in the next few moments, think about the process of inhaling and exhaling. Now, you may be on oxygen, you may have limited capacity to breathe, but most of us have the full ability to breathe. Maybe you have asthma, some kind of breathing condition, and you appreciate this. But the person, by hanging on the cross, had the weight of their body pushing down on their diaphragm. And so there was uh, the ability to bring air in, but no way for the air to come out. And so a slow process of suffocation would take place. 
The only way for a crucified victim to get a little bit of relief was to be able to push up on their feet in order to get the diaphragm free of the weight of their body so that they could exhale all that air that was coming in but could not get out. They say it was, you could hear before they were anesthetized at the end of that experience, the agony and the shrieks when one pushed up to try to talk. Jesus, over the course of six hours, utters, at least as the Holy Spirit preserves for us, seven different sayings. If you do the count, in English and in Greek, it's a little over 50 words. Jesus exerts himself to speak. And surely it's worth our time to take a few moments and see what Jesus said, what mattered so much that He went through such agony to make sure that for 2,000 plus years that we would know what was in His heart and on His mind that day. Jesus exerts Himself to speak words of pardon. In Luke 23 and verse 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That word forgive means to dismiss or to release or to send away. Send away from moral obligation and send away from consequences. This is what the dying Lord pushes himself up to say in what seems to be the earlier scenes of Calvary. It brings to mind, at least to me, what Leviticus 16 says about the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, there was a ritual the high priest went through in which there were two goats that were brought before him. And one was to be taken and the other was to be released. And the taken goat was to be slain. And the one who the lots fell upon to be released was the high priest would confess the sins of Israel over that goat and he would be released out into the wilderness. Leviticus 16, 8 and 10. Both of these represent Jesus. Because Jesus was the lamb that was slain. But Jesus also symbolically was the scapegoat because the Lord, and I appreciate Chuck reading this in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all and sends our sin out away from the very presence of God. Our forgiveness is in the mind of Christ as he's struggling and suffering on the cross. We have the source of pardon, Father. We have the object of pardon, forgive them, forgive us. And we have the motivation of pardon, for they know not what they do. Ignorance led Jesus to the cross. Jesus exerts himself to speak words of pardon. But then Jesus also exerts himself to speak words of promise. In Luke chapter 23, verse 39 through 43, we see that at one point, both of the criminals are cursing Jesus and they're railing against Him and they're using their words against Him. But somewhere along the line, one of those thieves has a change of heart. And in verse 40 through 42, he speaks in defense of Jesus. He says to the other thief who is mocking Jesus, he says, we're suffering justly, receiving in our bodies the things that are right, but this man has done nothing. And then he speaks to Jesus and he says... Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus pushes up and he speaks and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. On the other side of death, he had a reward that's waiting for this penitent thief. And isn't it interesting that Jesus speaks of what happens on the other side of death for us in John 14, 1 through 3, that he gives us a promise 
that in his father's house are many rooms. He's going to prepare that. He will come again and receive us unto himself. Jesus also exerts himself to speak words of personal concern. And for this, we go to John's gospel. John writes in John 19, 26 and 27, and Jesus sees his mother at the foot of the cross, the woman who brought him into this earth, the one with whom he had shared every moment of his existence as a human being, the one who had loved him and nurtured him. But now he's going to die and he's leaving her behind. And he sees the disciple whom he loved, John's favorite word to refer to himself in the Gospel of John. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. And then to him he says, behold your mother. Jesus is perfect for a million and one reasons. And one of the reasons is that even as he is struggling and suffering, he is trying to fulfill his familial duties and obligations. Let me say this, he still hurts with our hurts and he still feels with our feels. He looks at us and he notices in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 all the ways in which we struggle and he struggles with us. But then Jesus also speaks words of perplexity. He he pushes himself, he exerts himself to speak those words. And Matthew helps us with this. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 46. And starting here to the end of the cross, a remarkable thing about the suffering of Jesus is that Jesus' thoughts increasingly go to the Scriptures. Matthew's already set the scene for us for Psalm 22. The observations that Matthew makes throughout this Gospel account in verse 35 and verse 39 and verse 43 is uh, allusions to Psalm 22. And what Matthew is depicting for us is surely something that Jesus himself saw and it drew his mind to Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 and verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe that he feels like that the Father has forsaken him. He looks out and he sees his enemies and he sees no relief in sight. But maybe as he is quoting Psalm 22, as he contemplates not much speaking but mostly hanging and suffering, he's thinking about the triumphant ending of Psalm chapter 22. But we understand how that can feel. You can have full confidence in God's help and God's presence. But when you're struggling and hurting physically and emotionally and spiritually, you may still find your heart and your mouth opening up and saying to God, Why? But when I look at the cross, I see that Jesus knows what that feels like. He knows what you're going through. Jesus speaks those words of perplexity. But then Jesus speaks words of pain. He exerts himself on the cross to speak those words of pain. And in John chapter 19 and verse 28, John isolates for us one of the causes of pain. And he says this shortest phrase, I thirst. But as I think about this, I see an allusion to Psalm chapter 69 and verse 21. Is this on the mind of Christ? It was one of his favorite psalms. Twice in the book of John, he appeals to Psalm 69. Go to John 2.17 and John 15 and verse 25. And so we know that this psalm was in his heart and in his thoughts. And when you read that part, have you ever thought about this? When the soldiers offer him that bitter vinegar to drink, it was not a humanitarian act. It was an act of cruelty. Because you see that vinegar would restrict the muscles of the throat. And it would keep the victim from shrieking out in pain. Ancient writers would say that it was a form of amusement 
be able to do that. Jesus says, I thirst. I believe in part that he is appealing to and helping to fulfill that Old Testament prophecy in Psalm chapter 69 and verse 21. But I also think that Jesus in his humanity with all the suffering, with the sun and the heat beating down on him and those gnats and the flies swarming around him and those open gaping wounds festering, that Jesus among it all, the one who came to give living water, just wanted something to drink. And he accepted bitter vinegar. Jesus exerted himself to speak words of perseverance. In John 19 and verse 30, Jesus could say, it is finished. Jesus' love for you and me kept him fastened to the cross. It wasn't the Roman soldiers, it wasn't the Jewish leaders, it wasn't the rowdy mob. It was nothing else than his determination to die in our place. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Jesus came to finish His work and He would not leave until it was done. And it's because of that that we can reflect every Lord's Day with hope and promise that we can be on the Lord's right hand. But then we see that Jesus exerted Himself to speak words of purpose. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. The closer Jesus got to death, the more the scriptures were the rock that he leaned upon. Here is Psalm 31 and verse 5. Jesus prepared for Calvary the 33 years that preceded that. And so what was in him is what came out of him as he struggled and suffered on the cross that day. And it helps me to remember when I struggle and I go through pain, whatever's in me is what's going to come out of me. Jesus shows me, and I want to be more like him in this regard, that what needs to be in me is his word. But then I think about the beauty of this moment. Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you know this seems to also show us anticipation? Because on the other side of that death that he's about to die, Jesus is going to be in the presence of the Father once again. How he must have longed for that moment. How long it must have felt for even the one who inhabited eternity to be able to be in the presence of his Father once again. What Jesus does at the cross is not weakness, it's not helplessness, it's power and authority. He lays down his life. It's not taken from him. John 10 and verse 17. Now, I believe that what I've done for you is I've laid that out in its order. It seems to be. I don't know for sure, but it seems to be. And if so, Luke gives us his first words and his last words. And, in either language, his longest words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The one who was mercilessly treated is showing mercy. And that's him today. By right of taking the Lord's Supper uh, each Sunday... It's not a sacrament by which in the taking of it I automatically absolve myself of sins. It's a commemoration. It's a time for me to remember what was on the thoughts of Jesus and I know them because of the words that he says. As I bring it scenes before me, there's what Jesus speaks. But Let me briefly look at two other things. As I bring it scenes before me, there's what Jesus hears. You realize the words would have been rare and exceptional. 
Jesus would have mostly been a captive audience to the things that were going on around him. And Luke gives us what he hears. In, in verse 35, he hears the, the railing of the rulers. In verse 39, he hears the mockery of the soldiers. In verse 39, he hears the cursing of one of the soldiers, of the, one of the criminals. And in verse 40 through 42, he hears the pleading and the hopeful words of the other criminal that hung on the cross. Verse 35 says that there were the people who passed by that day and we could see what uh, they would have said. If we go to Mark 15 and verse 29, he says that they that passed by hurled abuse at him and spoke evil against him. And says, oh, you who destroyed the temple and built it back in three days. If you're the Christ, save yourself and come down from the cross. Jesus heard that. He heard those who may have addressed him directly. He heard the laughter of the mob around him who was paying no mind to him. Jesus is no longer hanging on the cross. But he hears all those who may have no value in the sacrifice that he suffered. He hears us too. It's a great study sometime to look at the times the gospel say Jesus heard. Jesus was the perfect listener. Jesus heard the centurion's faith and he marveled at it. In Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10. Jesus heard the Pharisees' criticism and he corrected their misinformation. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 12. Jesus heard somebody in Jairus' household who was concerned and Jesus addresses and comforts that concern in, in Luke 8 and verse 50. Jesus hears the rich young ruler's correct answer, but he still sees his spiritual challenge in Luke 18 and verse 22. Jesus hears about Lazarus' illness in John chapter 11 and verse 4 and he sees it as an opportunity for him to be able to show his power. Jesus hears today, but what does he hear from me? Does he hear my faith? And marvel? Does he hear my misinformation and challenge me? Does he hear my answer that may be the right answer but still see a spiritual struggle? Does he, does he hear an opportunity to comfort me and to show me his power? You know, the, uh, concerning the perfect listener, Matthew 17 and verse 5 tells us, listen to him. As I bring it scenes before me, I also see that Jesus feels. That's the dominant feature of what happens on the cross that day. You read a a Bible dictionary and you see all that's a part of the crucifixion process. You see the, uh, the, the, the mortification of untended wounds. You see fever. You see dehydration and its effects taking place. You see the dread of anticipation. You see the horror in the eyes of the suffering victim. And again, as the Romans had perfected it, it would bring the person so much suffering that they did not feel that they could bear any more, but it stopped short of causing the victim to go unconscious. Jesus felt. Jesus felt the pain of the cross, but he also felt the mockery of the people. Look at verse 35, 38. The various ways in which Jesus was made to feel. He, he felt the shame and the mockery of them casting their lots over his garments. And they, he felt the shame of them putting an inscription over the cross that was not put there in reverence. But Jesus also felt the power and the presence of God. Because the sun was eclipsed. Darkness came over the land for three hours. The veil in the temple tore in top, from top to bottom in two And it drew Jesus' attention to the Father in verse 46. Jesus felt his life slipping away. Jesus did not have his life taken from him. 
Jesus yielded up the ghost. Same word for that word forgiveness in Mark 15 and verse 37. Jesus still feels today. Jesus feels the pain of those who abandon him. Hebrews 6 and verse 6. Jesus feels the pain of those who would trample him underfoot. Hebrews 10 29. But Jesus still feels with us and for us. Take it personally. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. There have been some famous pictures in history, haven't there? You know, some of them are, are pictures that bring celebration and are uh, p- very positive. I, I think about the sailor kissing the nurse uh, in Times Square on VJ Day in 1945. Or that iconic picture of Neil Armstrong as he steps on the moon in 1969. Or those soldiers on Iwo Jima putting up that flag in '45. There are other pictures that are horrific to see. They're pictures of pain and they're pictures of death. You think about that plane, Flight 175, as that moment is captured right before it hits the south tower of the World Trade Center. Or you think about that cloud over Nagasaki and the dropping of the bomb. Or the photograph that's very simply entitled Brave Man in Tiananmen Square who's standing in front of that tank on behalf of freedom. Or the Hindenburg blimp as it's exploding. There are pictures that are unforgettable. What would it have been like to have been there on that day? But thanks to Luke and the other gospel writers' account, we can visit its scenes. We can see that picture over and over again. I hope as you take the Lord's Supper each week that your mind goes back and you think about what He did whether it's the speaking and the hearing and the feeling or whatever aspect you look at and that it changes you. When I was in Colorado, there was a 21-year-old young woman who lost control of her car and went up onto a sidewalk and there were three pedestrians walking. They were all blind. Her act killed a 47-year-old man from Baltimore, Maryland. He was in Denver to attend the Center for the Blind. He was walking with two other students, two women. And as he heard that moment about to happen, he pushes those two young women out of the way and he takes the brunt of the hit and he dies. Next day, he had a plane ticket. He was going back home to Baltimore to be with his family for Christmas. He would never make it. David Nanny was his name. David Nanny had come from Baltimore to Denver. to He was a carpenter. And he came to learn the tools of his trade without sight. He was respected. He was loved. Everybody who knew him thought well of him. In the course of reading that article, what was said was that that girl, as you could understand, was racked with guilt. And those two young women, they were so grateful. And how do you express words of gratitude? And David Nanny gave the ultimate sacrifice. And I couldn't help, as I listened to that story, to think about how a lowly carpenter came and he pushed us out of the way. But you see, in this story, we're both the girl behind the wheel and the two women on the sidewalk. How do we respond to Calvary? What do we do with the lowly carpenter 
of Nazareth. This invitation that we're about to sing, the song of invitation, is to encourage us. At Calvary, I believe, is the name of the song. Friends, we've been to Calvary. We go to Calvary when we worship together. Calvary is not just a place to remember. It's a place that should change our lives. It's an event that should make us different. Here's what that means. If you're not a Christian, Calvary should motivate you, the love there, to become His child, to be obedient to Him. It should motivate you. If Christ is not first in your life, He's not the priority of your life, that should change you so that nothing comes before Him. And if you're a faithful child of God, it should move you to continue living in the way that you know He wants you to live. The invitation is for one who needs to respond in a public way. If that's you, we would urge you to do so right now as we stand and sing.